the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. We're joined today by Kelly Flanagan to talk about mental health and the church, arguing well, and a whole host of other things. You're listening to The Common Good. Thrilled to be joined today uh, by Dr. Kelly Flanagan. Kelly is a uh, clinical psychologist. Am I getting your title right? Clinical psychologist. psychologist. Also the author of many books, including a a fiction book entitled The Unhiding of Elijah Campbell. We'd encourage you to go pick that up. But as we joked about before the break, I'm just going to pick Kelly's therapist brain on many things today. And hopefully they're helpful for me and for you. So, uh, Kelly, I told you I've been, I, I was reading a little bit about the concept of parental estrangement. Um, mm-hmm. So around the holidays, you get lots of these family issues going on. Uh, and you told me when I pitched it to you, you were like, hey, this is a uniquely American thing. I'm like, oh, this is going to be interesting. So mm-hmm. let's start with just defining the issue. What is this idea of parental or family estrangement? Yeah, I mean, so as I understand it, parental estrangement is sort of defined as um, an adult, an adult child who has usually the child has elected to no longer be in contact with their their living parents. Um, mm. And you'd mentioned it, you know, when we got on today, I didn't know what we were going to talk about, but it recalled an article <laughs> that said rates of parental estrangement are uh, are really high in the United States and. There's no close second in the world, like in the United wow. States. And the article didn't actually, I mean, it, I can't even remember what it speculated. The speculations didn't strike me as particularly meaningful, whatever they were imagining the reason to be. Um, but I do remember that, that it's, it is something that we deal with in the United States more. So that, that could be a little bit of a clue to what's going on. I don't quite know hmm. uh, where that leads. But, um, but yeah, so this is, a, this is a thing that a lot of us in the U.S. are dealing with. Yeah, Um do you have speculation? Why do you think this is, um, is it that we're individualistic? Is it that, what, what could it be, do you think that's unique about our culture that makes this an issue? I have some ideas. I mean, I think, um, I think that, yes, the, the hyper individualism of our culture is certainly a part of it. Um, I think the hyper mobility of our culture, um, if you continue to live on the same street in the same neighborhood, um, in the same town as your parents, you're much less likely to be uh, in a parental estrangement situation uh, when there's the reality that we can move across the country and sort of live almost in different worlds, um, find right. jobs in other places, especially post-COVID now, you know, I can go live anywhere and work my job remotely. Um, I think it it paves the way for the opportunity for parental estrangement. Um, a number of years ago, 2015, we moved back from the suburbs um, to uh, Dixon, Illinois, where I grew up mm. and uh, where I'm at right now, you see you see a little bit less parental estrangement in Dixon because families are still li- nuclear families are still living sort of close to each other. You're next to your family of origin. You just don't sort of there's just not the opportunity or the option even for parental estrangement. So I think it's the ind- individuality, the individualism. I think it's the the mobility. Um, I think 
I mean, I hope I can say this and not offend too many people. I think there's something like uniquely American about our refusal to admit that we're wrong. Um, and and <laughs> yes. my experience, right? This is like coming from the, the perspective of a clinical psychologist who's worked with a number of young adults, middle-aged adults who are wrestling with whether or not they want to sever ties with, with their adult parents. This is the pattern that I see uh, people go through. You enter usually at sometime in early to mid thirties, you see someone start to come to new awareness about, and oftentimes this is associated with having children of our own and going, mm. Oh, I'm parenting my kid the opposite of how I was parented mm-hmm. because, Oh, the way I was parented hurt. It didn't feel good. It, it, you know, it was painful. And so now I'm coming to new awareness about realities that I grew up with disappointments. I had, um, wounds I have with my parents and most therapists will tell you now go, well, you have to deal with those. You have to address those with your parents. You know, you have to discuss those with your parents and, and try to work through those towards reconciliation and forgiveness. And the most common element I see when parental estrangement is the outcome is a parent. And usually the answer is I did the best I could. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about that. Right. I did the best I could. We're not going to discuss it. And, and what becomes the sticking point is that for the younger person, the, the adult child, they're going, well, I need, I need some conversation. I need some ownership. I need some apology. I need something to, to sort of pave the way for reconciliation here. I need to know it's going to be different going forward. And so when the response is, sorry, can't help you. Um, it's, mm. I did the best I could. And, and, and you're not going to, you're not going to do this to me now. That's when you see the door for parental estrangement starting to to be open yeah. for the younger person. Yeah. Um, I often say this to folks: kids don't need parents who are perfect. They need parents who mm. know they aren't perfect <laughs> and can mm. sort of own their imperfections. Um, and like I always say, I'm waiting for the day um, one of my kids goes to their first adult therapy and comes home. And I tell you I'm what, just, <laughs> I'm just realizing. You did this and this and this, and I want to be prepared for that day to hold space for that feedback rather than to tighten up, shut down, and go, hey, listen. Because the truth is I did – I have done the best I could. That's true. Yeah. That's yeah. true, right? Also, what's true is the best that I could was <laughs> extravagantly flawed and, yes. and painful for my kids probably in a lot of ways. So can I hold space for that reality? Um, and if I can, I think the odds of parental estrangement go down. Uh, I – couldn't agree more. 19 years ago when we had our first child, uh, I said to my wife jokingly, but with every joke, there's truth, right? I jokingly said to her, I ju- it's not a matter of if our child ends up in counseling. It's just a matter of why. <laughs> like right. it's, right. it's, what's, it's what's going to happen. Like we're, we're going to do something. So let's uh, uh, taking abuse aside, like there are reasons like, you know, if you grew up in an abusive relationship, there's definite sure. reasons to separate and sure. do this. But taking sure. abuse aside and just just going to the co- the complicated life of adults with their parents or right. this or that, how do you counsel people about how to do that? Well, because my guess is you don't want to pe- end up with people estranged from their parents. But how no. do people we struggle? I'm sure you struggle. Everyone I know struggles with. What is that relationship supposed to look like? Yeah, yeah. Well, I do. I mean, at first, I do like the idea of holding open hope for, 
like a deep reconciliation. And I see this among some people, some clients where they approach their parents later in life and say, Hey, I'm realizing this was my reality growing up. You were part of it. It was hard. And it can really pave the way for a deep intimacy and a, a real closeness between adult mm-hmm. children and their parents. So you do see success stories here. Um, I think then the question comes in when when the reaction is more that reaction of we're not discussing this. Um, how dare you even sometimes, mm-hmm. um, you know, accuse me. I was doing the best I could. Then the question becomes, um, first of all, we start to think about forgiveness versus reconciliation right? That those are two different things. Reconciliation is um, the decision to continue to do life as is with a person. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas forgiveness doesn't necessarily involve doing any more life together at all, um, Mm -hmm. but being able to release that person um, from your uh, sort of the emotional ramifications of of that experience. And so, um, so we start to work on forgiveness and then we start to think sort of more in a more nuanced way about what does reconciliation look like? If you're the only one participating really in the reconciliation, what Mm. might that look like for you? How far are you willing to go in your, in your, um, in your efforts to continue to do life with this person? Um, and usually there's all sorts of middle ground there and all all sorts of Mm. nuance and gray, and there's no final answer to it. It's That's like, right. Well, when I'm 35, this is how much I'm willing to participate in life with this person. But when I'm 45, the answer might be totally different. And so it requires mm. a constant sort of self-awareness and checking in on where am I at right now and, and how far am I willing to go? And I think we always want to try to push ourselves as far as we're willing to go to do life yeah. with our, our family and our loved ones, um, even when that is hard at times. Um, so it requires a lot of attention to what's going on inside. Kelly, we've done this all throughout the show here. I appreciate you allowing us to just jump into the deep end uh, of hurts, of identity, of parenting, of all of these things. Uh, So we're going to do it again here. Uh, As you know, Aubrey and I are both pastors, and I was reading this over at Christianity Today. They were talking about to be a pastor is to know betrayal. Uh, if you had asked me that 10 years ago, I would have said, that's not true. That's not true. And now 10 years later, I'm like, that is a hundred percent true. Uh, but it's not just a pastor thing, right? Like to be human is to know betrayal to be whatever. And what I want to ask you about is how to manage betrayal, because when we don't manage it well, and I will be honest with you, especially in my job as a pastor, there have been with certain people I've not handled this well. And it is the fruit that's come out of this is longstanding bitterness. It's just anger, Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. which I think is the natural outflow when we don't deal with our, uh, when we've been let down, betrayed, whatever else it might be. And so, uh, you know, I keep asking you these questions of just how do we deal with betrayal? How do we deal with being let down and get to the point where it just doesn't harden us and make us bitter? It's mm, a great question. Um, you know, first of all, I appreciate what you're modeling right now, you know, mm-hmm. and to be able to, to stand up here as a pastor and say it, it hurts and the temptation is to get hard and, and mm-hmm. think about it. Um, because I think what you're modeling is the most important thing that all of us can do is we we think there's a way we should react to Mm. things. You know, it'd be very easy for a pastor to go, Hey, there's turnover in churches. People come and go. People are complicated. Mm -hmm. Why am I reacting so strongly to this? I just need to like, I need to show the love of Christ and, and relax a little bit and peace, be peaceful and loving. And that's like denying such a huge part 
of your of your spirituality and your your humanity. I mean, we mm-hmm. get to see Jesus do it all and over. He over and over, he snaps right at, at yeah. people, at Pharisees, at, people, at disciples, at you know. I mean, he's just he's yeah. just yeah. flustered with people over and over again. And so, I think the first thing again, like we talked about, is to to move all of your reaction to those situations into the realm of your awareness. To not censor it. We want to like we want to push half of our reactions into our shadow, into our unconscious, into our unawareness because mm. we think they're not acceptable. They're all acceptable. As long as you're not acting on them, they're all acceptable. So welcome all of them into awareness and again, move mm. them even further into the boundaries of your compassion um, for what it's like to be in your leadership position. Um, and what that almost always does is it brings us in connection with the tenderest part of the pain. And in the tenderest mm. part of the pain, there isn't bitterness. Right. And it's also the be- it's also the beginning of the possibility of solidarity um, mm. to to be able to, to live in solidarity in your pain with the pain of the person who left the pain of the person who betrayed you, um, that, that capacity for empathy and, and compassion for them. Um, so I think it's it's about always trying to, to not deny the bitterness because the bitterness is like that first breadcrumb kind mm. of leading you deeper and deeper to the tenderest parts of your your pain and your hurt, which by the way, won't, won't, if you go, if you, if you keep going and you keep holding space for it, won't stop at this particular parishioner leaving your church or doing whatever mm-hmm. it'll go to, Oh, that time in eighth grade. <laughs> Joey, yes. Right. And yeah. Oh, that time when they went to my sister's volleyball game instead of my, I mean, it's all in there. So of course a mm-hmm. lot is getting triggered and, and we just try to hold space for our whole story and have compassion for it instead of acting on it. Yeah, I like for me as a pastor, when people, especially when I believe it to be unfair, when they leave my church, if I'm really bluntly honest, it is, I'm not mad that they've left my church. It just feels uh, a rejection of me. And so, right. uh, you know, you've been talking a lot about ego. I think for me, it That's manifests right. itself in people come to my church because of me, people leave my church because of me. And, uh, mm. and the quicker I can get away from those things, the more that I can go, I've got a great mentor and I'll ask him things like, Oh, your church is really growing right now. Like, what are you doing? And he'll be like, you know, (laughs) it's just a, it's just a good place for people. And he's very self-deprecating on the good and the bad. He'll be like, you know, I've learned over the years and I'm like, Oh, I need more of that in my life. So, uh, people out there dealing with anger in general, how do you help people unpack anger because anger, my guess is, is a fruit of other underlying stuff. Like, how do you start healing from? How do you start healing from anger, from bitterness, and not living in that? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I, we we have to do, in, in in a way that isn't just heady, but like experience, is that anger and aggression are two totally different things. And hmm. aggression almost never serves anybody well. Um, but anger is totally fine. There's that, that inside out animated film, right? Where anger was one of the five core mm-hmm, and important mm-hmm. characters and emotions, just right alongside all the rest, you know? Um, so anger, like, especially like when you see it in Jesus character, right? Is he, it, anger is telling us about what matters to him. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of arising from his sense of, uh, justice and righteousness, not self-righteousness, yeah. but holy righteousness. So we, first of all, aggression is different from anger. And also I often talk about, and I don't know if I can remember them all right now, but my wife, <laughs> I, the four types of anger, frustrated anger, which is just something is, is in the way of me reaching the goal that I want. And kids have this mm. all the time, frustrated anger, right? Then there's the ego anger, 
the, like you said, I've personalized this and this feels like a personal rejection and I need to protect my sense of self and self-esteem in this. Um, then there's righteous anger, the, the kind of anger that says this is wrong in the world. Like this is broken and it needs to be fixed. Mm. And we see a lot of that from Enneagram ones. Um, and then there was a fourth kind of anger, which I can't quite remember right now. But so basically you hold space for it. You get to know it. What is it telling me about what matters to me, about what I'm protecting? Um, and then once you've done that work, you can decide how you want to act on it. And usually the, the, the answer is you don't act aggressively at all. Yeah. Um, you find some other wiser way to act. It's a good word, man. Are you an Enneagram guy? I just heard you drop that out there. You, uh, I, I mean, you know, there's various degrees of Enneagram guys. It definitely. Influences <laughs> <a lot>. <laughs> <laughs> Aubrey always, I would bring that up because Aubrey gives me a really hard time because we, uh, I've never done it. I don't know. And so she's constantly trying to guess. She's like, oh, you're this. You to take a survey. And I'm like, I don't even know what that means. I don't, I don't know what that means. And she'll be like, one time we had a guest on who was, uh, literally had written about the Enneagram. And they spent like half the time trying to guess what I was. And I was like, I don't know that yeah. this is helpful for me. <laughs> How are tools um, like that good? Get, yeah, you, you still got to go through the stage then where you take the Enneagram survey and you don't like what it tells you. And so you, you resist that <laughs> at that level because that's one of the classic like hallmarks of the Enneagram is that um, the, as you sort of, sort of reveal yourself, it, it reveals ego and ego does not like mm. to look at itself, right? And so you have to go sort of through that stage again of like having compassion for why you protect the way that you do. Um, yeah. why, are, why are tools like the Enneagram helpful? Um, I just find them like, I, it really bothers me when people start to use them as a categorizing technique like oh you're this yep the enneagram is a special tool that is designed to facilitate our spiritual growth and our movement towards wholeness it's not meant to categorize and say well this is the who you are this is the way you're going to be the way i think of it is like if you think of the enneagram like as a wheel with each of the types being a spoke on the wheel the 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 most unhealthy version of each type is like located out on the rim and so all mm. types look very different. They have a lot of space between them. But as you journey towards health along that spoke towards the center, towards God's intention for each of us, you actually start to see those types all become more and more alike. All of a sudden, mm -hmm. a nine looks like a one, looks like a two. And um, so there's this sort of convergence in, in, in holiness um, as, we, as we grow healthier. I mean, I was a Myers Briggs guy, you know. That was the first, that was the precursor. So I, I know I need right. to do it. But now that Aubrey pushes me so much, it it makes me not want to do it. <laughs> oh, well, then maybe you're an eight. <laughs> maybe that's all we need to know. <laughs> it's fair. An, an that's eight is, fair. An eight's the challenger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. One of these days, I'll do it. But I, I'm not going to let her know that I did it because she asked me to. So, all right, coming up next, <laughs> I, I want to talk. Uh, I go a couple different directions with Kelly, but one of them is about social media uh, with our kids, with ourselves. I think that we're learning a lot about social media and um, what are the healthy aspects, but more so uh, what are the unhealthy aspects? We're going to do that next year on The Common Good. AIM 1160, hope for your life. Social media, it is not going away. It is, mm -hmm. uh, it is here to stay. In fact, with each day, it feels like there's a new way to do social media, right? For the most part, it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat for our kids. But now you got other stuff popping its head up. Uh, Gospel Coalition last week wrote competing articles. I really appreciated the way they did it. They wrote competing articles. And we had Sarah Zylstra actually on the show. She wrote the article uh, why I got off social media and am not going back. 
Hmm. And then they also had an article from somebody else on staff, why I remain on social media. And it was just a whole different perspective Uh, as a dad, as a counselor, as just a guy. How do you just view social media? Oh, man. Um, I, I mean, I have my own sort of tortured relationship to social media. <laughs> Love um, to hear it. Generally, right? Like, I, I mean, um, I, I produce a lot of content, uh, writing, mm-hmm. video, otherwise. And, uh, and social media is the way to get your content to people these days and the ways mm-hmm. to let, let them know about it. Um, and so it's a, it's a presence in my life. Um, and yet I sort of recognize that um, that it it expands. Uh, it doesn't, it never contracts left to its own devices. Uh, it takes up more and more time, more and more space. It's designed that way. Um, I recognize that I don't feel as emotionally healthy the more time mm-hmm. that I spend on it. Um, I don't feel as cognitively healthy. I feel more fragmented and distracted. Mm-hmm. Um, I recognize my own need for fences around it um, and, and strict guidelines and accountability to stick with those guidelines. Um, and so I feel like my responsibility as a parent, see, our kids don't know the before part of that. That's right. They don't know what it was, right. They don't know what it was like to live as a human being (laughs) before social media was fragmenting their attention and throwing so much stimulation at them and creating such complicated social dynamics amongst their peers. And so I feel like my job is to hold that reality for my kids and to know, Hey, there is a way to be human. Um, beyond social media. And, uh, and so the, the same guidelines, the same restrictions that I place on myself uh, and the same awareness that I try to bring to it, we're going to try to sort of pass that on to you and teach you. Um, and so we developed a social, actually devices contract a while back um, that was developed in collaboration with our kids about what are the guidelines around these devices. Um, and, uh, and so I just, I feel like my job as a parent is to, um, to, to face the reality of my own relationship with all of this and, uh, and to try to help craft a, a healthy relationship with the kids and, and their own social media. Oh, I'm sure other people feel this because the second you said that, I thought to myself, I want to know what those guidelines are. So if you'd share, what are, what are some of the guidelines that the Flanagan's came up with with teenagers in the house? And uh, do you have to live by the same, uh, by the same uh, guidelines? Yeah. It's a great question. Um, so the way that we did it was we, we first of all, we identified a, a sort of a mission statement, um, clarifying what our devices are that in our family, we want those devices to be primarily devices for communication and efficiency and only secondarily for entertainment, um, because that is it's a whole nother topic. But social media has become entertainment media. You know, we don't more and more, we recognize we don't go to social media to connect with people we know. We go there to receive content from people we don't know, influencers mm. and strangers. So, um, so to number one, recognize that it's actually not these days as much of a viable form of social connection as it was even five, six years ago. So it's an entertainment media. It's an entertainment device. And so we want to build our relationship to it around trying to keep it a way to communicate with people in the real world and a way to, um, to be efficient and productive. Um, and so what we did is we went through all these different, like we just threw out restrictions, ways, you know, ways to, um, to manage it when we can use it, how much and those sorts of things. And we would, we'd, we'd throw it out there. And if there wasn't five thumbs ups, then we'd have to have a discussion about why. And then there was always the discussion about, well, are you and mom going to do it? And well, in our <laughs> reality, right. Where I'm, I'm doing every, everything through my phone. 
I can't yeah. have quite the same restrictions as you. Um, but uh, but th that's the idea is to sort of collaborate with their kids. Because if we lay it down as an authoritarian sort of edict, it's not gonna, it's, they're going to find ways around it. They're smarter than us, right? But if they that have, have buy-in from them and collaboration, there's a, a light, greater likelihood that they'll actually participate in some of the, the guidelines that we've set up. I find it hard, not just with my kids, but myself. I've, I've read all the studies. I watched the documentary, right? The uh, social dilemma, all of that stuff. Yeah. But yet I even know personally, I can't get myself to give it up. And you, right. I read Sarah Zylstra's article. She basically said, it has helped me think better. I relate to other, the stuff that she said. It is like her experience. You're going, I want all of those things in my life. Yet we can't give it up. And I get what you're saying. I have some of the same stuff with a radio show and a church where there is some yeah. necessary things to it, but that's a small slice of my social media life right yeah. now. Any well, ideas like why like we it. can't give it up? Like why, why can't we give it up? Is it like, what <laughs> is it about it? That just is like so addicting for us. Well, and I appreciate the fact that we all need to do our own personal inventory. And if you can mm -hmm. do an honest self-reflection and say, this is enhancing my life. Go for it. You know, I think John Hartberg said, if tying your shoes brings you closer to God, tie your shoes all day long, right? So uh, if, yes. if social media is an, enhancing your life and, and your, your spiritual journey and so on, then do it. Um, so there's actually a passage in The Unhiding of Elijah Campbell where he's in dialogue with someone, um, an old mentor, and they're having this conversation about what I call proxies for worth. And in proxies for worth, you go back to that moment in your life where you got the message that you weren't worthy the way that you were. And what mm -hmm. you do is you go out in the world and you develop proxies for worth, sort of substitutes. And there are several characteristics in this conversation that they explore about uh, what the, uh, makes for a good proxy. But numbers, numbers often make for a good proxy because you can sort of keep a mm. scoreboard. Of, Ooh, how worthy am I relative to other people? Social media is built around numbers, followers, mm -hmm. likes, views. I mean, all of that. And so what you're doing is you're going to your social media for that hit of worthiness, essentially. Yeah. Oh, this many people like this. Um, I, I've got this thing going right now where I, um, I just posted a silly thing about how Alexa would make an insufferable life marriage partner. <laughs> and, uh, it's at like 3,000 3, hearts on Instagram, right? Which you, you have... The temptation is to start to buy into that, right? Oh, 100%. And, yes. And, and so I think, um, I, I think the media is so well designed to make us keep going back to it for hits of worthiness um, that we get addicted to it. I just had somebody recently say to me, quit alcohol, quit cigarettes, can't quit my phone. This is scary, mm. right? And, uh, and so it just sort of tells us a little bit about how addicted we are to it because we're addicted at an emotional level, not just a physiological yeah. level. I posted something that the other day that I thought was very funny and uh, to very, and one of the spots it was in was Facebook. And this is where I knew there was a yeah. little bit of a problem because I've gotten to the point where I've, I'm not on Facebook much anymore. Like I deleted it from my phone, all of this mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, I, I re-downloaded it to see what yes, reaction it was getting and then I deleted it again. Yes. <laughs> and I was like, uh oh, that's probably a bad sign. <laughs> oh, thank you for that honesty. I can so much relate to that. I've done it. Um, I, you know, I don't know which apps I've done it on, but I have done it. Yep. Can relate. And I'm just like, well, I'll quickly delete it after it. And I thought to myself, 
Yeah, that can't be healthy. That can't be healthy. So out there, we, I, I think what Kelly's uh, given us a good picture of is have the conversations in your family or with yourself. Uh, what role? Uh, yeah. Don't let your phones control you. Control your phones instead. And all that comes with it, I think, is is a good word. Man, this was a ton of fun. I know we've never spent this much time together. Uh, usually people have to pay a lot of money to spend this much time with you. So I'm, I'm grateful. <laughs> well, I really do. I appreciate Brian. you, man. Thanks for doing this. Brian, this was a blast. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And Aubrey will be back tomorrow. Uh, so be sure to join us from four until six. Until then, we hope you have a great night again. For Kelly, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.